from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. On Friday, we get our weekly legislative update. Missouri Senate approved a budget this week with zero dollars for Medicaid expansion. That follows the same choice by the Missouri House, and it's a big deal. After all, voters approved a constitutional amendment last summer to expand the program. So what now? This will likely end up in court, and there's a chance a judge could order the state to uh, put the money into this program or pay the bills associated with it. Um, We just don't know, and the governor hasn't been precise about what he thinks is going to happen next, and the big due date on the decision will be July 1st when coverage is supposed to start. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Joining us today to talk about that and much more is Jason Hancock. He is the editor-in-chief of the Missouri Independent. That nonprofit news site has become the go-to source for coverage of state government. And we're grateful that he still makes the time to talk to us. So, Jason Hancock, welcome back. Happy to be here. So, Jason, we'll get to the ramifications of the Senate's decision in a minute, but walk us back to how we got here. Did Democrats and the Republicans in favor of expanding Medicaid put up much of a fight? So the Senate Minority Leader, a guy named John Rizzo, he's a Democrat from Independence. He made the uh, he offered the amendment to put Medicaid expansion back into the budget, which was expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the speechifying began. Democrats got up and made their case. A few Republicans did. Uh, a colleague of mine who wrote about the the debate said that it sort of compressed a decade long argument into two hours, hmm. where each side was sort of making their case. Republicans as to why expansion was a bad idea, Democrats as to why it was necessary, and the big surprise was that um, Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden, who's a Republican from Columbia, you know, he's a, obviously a leader in the the party and a leader in the chamber, stood up and and made the case for why the Senate should do it. You know, hmm. arguing that. A court will eventually make us do this. We should not dither around. The people have spoken. We should put this money in. Um, it didn't move a lot of votes, though. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there were three Republicans who supported it in committee, uh, plus Rowden on the floor, 10 Democrats. So 14 people ended up voting to put the money in the budget. 20 voted against, and of course it was defeated. Um, there was another minor, uh, I won't say minor, but another amendment that was attempted later in the night uh, didn't. It was an extended debate. I guess they got it out of their system. Um, and then they approved the budget, and now they're, it's off to, to work out differences with the House. But with Medicaid expansion not in it, uh, it is a dead issue for the legislature right now. So it's a dead issue for the legislature. What moves would Governor Parson, who has said that he's in favor of this funding, what kind of uh, choices does he have at this point, if any? Well, the state constitution directs uh, his administration to start providing coverage July 1st. Mm-hmm. You know, the expansion, uh, it, it expands the population of people who are eligible for coverage. And so it, it now moves to his desk, this idea of what do you do on July 1? And there's a lot of different uh, theories as to what could happen next. He could say, look, people are eligible. And then eventually the program's going to run out of money. And lawmakers will have to come back and appropriate money because they've only put money in to support X thousand people when there's twice as many people now eligible. Mm-hmm. Um, he could say, well, we don't have the funding, so we can't expand eligibility, which would pr- like immediately spark a lawsuit mm-hmm. of people who are denied coverage. And then there's options that I've heard even so far as, 
you know, it could get to the point where there's hospitals or these the managed care companies that, that administer the program uh, have bills that they send to the state. And if the state says, well, we don't have the money to pay you, they could sue. Hmm. Um, I think the only thing everyone kind of agrees on is that this will likely end up in court and there's a chance a judge could order the state to, uh, to, to, to put the money into this program or pay the bills associated with it. Um, we just don't know. And the governor hasn't been precise about what he thinks is going to happen next. And the big due date on the decision will be July 1st when coverage is supposed to start. In the meantime, could the governor reject this budget? He could. He could absolutely uh, veto the budget. I mean, that sets off a, a kind of a cascade of consequences. You know, if he vetoes the budget that has Medicaid in it, he's vetoing the budget for the Department of Mental Health, mm. Department of Social Services, the Department of Health and Senior Services. Um, it doesn't go into effect July 1, which would mean he could call a special session and try to get them to come back and pass those budgets before the fiscal year ends. Um, I don't. I haven't heard anybody suggesting he's even contemplating doing that. That would be sort of the nuclear option. I think if there was a Democrat in that office, maybe we'd be talking about that potential uh, play. But I, I think what's going to end up happening is the next decision is going to be whether he implements uh, expansion without adequate funding. And then uh, if he does, what happens next? And, and we're sort of entering into the unknown here. But I, like I said, I think most everyone believes at some point uh, a judge is going to have a say about whether Missouri's needs to fund expansion. Hmm. Do you think the Republicans who chose not to fund this program, are they making a calculated decision that they have a better legal case? They can win this in court or is it not quite that strategic? It depends on who you're talking to. I I think there are people who just genuinely think it's bad policy. And even if there is a a court in the future that orders them, they don't want to be the ones that that made that call. They want to take a stand on principle. I think there are some who think they would have a case. You know, the the Constitution doesn't permit uh, a ballot measure to, to require an appropriation of the legislature unless it comes up with some sort of funding stream. And so they're going to make the case that this this they can't appropriate money through the, the initiative petition process. And then there are folks, you know, if you get down to the most crass reasoning, who just, this is good politics for Republicans in Missouri to oppose what is still considered, you know, a federal overreach in some circles with Obamacare. So I think you have like a myriad of, of motivations getting people to stand against this. Um, and again, it's sort of right where we've been for the last decade in some of these arguments. Hmm. Well, we heard from a lot of listeners who had a lot of thoughts about this. And suffice it to say, while this may be popular in some Republican districts, I think in the St. Louis area, this was not a particularly popular move by the Republicans. Uh, Tom writes on Facebook, the Missouri Republicans have become an anti-business party. Because of their extremist politics, the state may miss out on many millions of dollars we've already paid in our federal income tax. Dorothy tweets, it really is an affront to the whole idea of majority voting to see Republican legislators discard or disregard elections, but they've been doing it with impunity. Think clean Missouri. They lie and use abortion and guns to keep the followers following, and they count on indifference. Um, Jason, this was approved. This expansion was approved by the voters. It was, uh, you know, a, a strong majority said that they wanted this constitutional amendment. Do you think there could be repercussions for this vote for the Missouri Republican Party? I think that's what the Democrats count on. Uh, you know, I just sort of back of napkin, I, I noticed there were three Republicans who voted against expansion, whose districts voted for expansion. And so there are some who voted against their districts in this. 
Um, but I mean, Republicans have played similar types of games with these sort of ballot measures for years where the, something passes on the ballot and they come back and they tinker with it or they reverse it. Um, it's one of the reasons a lot of these things end up being constitutional amendments because they're trying to make it harder for the legislature to come back and make changes. Um, so this has kind of played out over the last 10 years while simultaneously Democrats have continued to get uh, fewer and fewer votes uh, over those years. So it, it's this conundrum that that party has where they're successful in these things like raising the minimum wage, expanding Medicaid, medical marijuana legalization. And then they, you get further down the ballot, and they're getting voted out of office. And so, um, you know, could there be ramifications for this? Obviously, there could, people voting against their districts. But historically, at least in the last 10 to 15 years, Republicans haven't had a lot of blowback hmm. from making these sorts of moves. We also heard from Chris Kelly. He's a former Missouri representative, a state representative from Columbia. He tweeted this. Two issues you might pursue are, one, the degree to which those who will be covered are working. Republicans are fond of saying that expansion is welfare for able-bodied adults. And two, the constitutional amendment created a right that is as real and legal in Missouri as the Second Amendment. Putting aside that legal theory there for a minute, um, we did see a lot of debate and, and quotes coming out about if people want this coverage, they should get a job. Is that a fair assessment of, of who would be covered under this, that this would be largely unemployed people? Well, no, because most of the people we're talking about fall into that sort of donut hole of coverage that was created when expansion wasn't implemented initially under the Affordable Care Act, where you had some people who, if you're living in extreme poverty, you would already be qualifying. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you lived above the 138% of poverty, you qualified for subsidies to buy your own plan. And so we we're really talking about those people in the middle who do have jobs, they do earn money, they just don't earn enough to get their own insurance or their employers don't provide them with insurance, but they earn too little to qualify for subsidies designed to get you into the marketplace. Hmm. Um, that's who these, this expansion population really is. And so uh, the representative is correct, or the former representative is correct, that we are talking about a population that's already working that's going to be eligible for these benefits. So they were supposed to become eligible July 1st. You laid out a couple of different scenarios of what could happen. What are you going to be watching for in the next couple of weeks as, as we try to get a sense of what could happen then? I mean, all eyes go to the governor, you know, the Department of uh, Social Services and Missouri Health Net, which is Missouri's Medicaid program, are going to have to start implementing policies to get uh, to accommodate for the fact that, you know, 200 some odd people become eligible on July 1. Mm -hmm. Um so if the department, if, if the governor decides that he's just not going to implement it because the money's not there, you know, there could be signs bureaucratically that that's, in, that's coming down the pike. Um, you know, and we're going to be looking for him as the budget hits his desk to kind of get an indication of where he's leaning. Like I said, his public statements have been somewhat down the middle, hasn't wanted to really weigh in. He opposed Medicaid expansion, but obviously put it in his budget after it was passed. And so... Um, yeah, we're going to be watching the governor. There's going to be a lot of, you know, the old school criminologists of trying to see, like, read between the lines of his public statements and see what he's going to do on July 1st. 
We're talking today to Jason Hancock. He's the editor-in-chief of the nonprofit news site, The Missouri Independent, here with our weekly legislative update. Um, Jason, while we're devoting a lot of time to the Medicaid issue, there have been so many other things happening. Your staff has been very busy. Um, One of the big ones, the Senate took aim at vaccine passports and public health restrictions. Now, I know that six different states, these are all led by Republican governors, they have banned COVID-19 quote-unquote vaccine passports. Three of them even prevent private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination. Where does the Missouri Senate's plan fit within that spectrum? Well, there there has been some debate. You know, the House had a pretty lengthy debate about uh, uh, vaccinations and, and, you know, uh, local control and and things like that. The Senate approved a couple of measures on a bill. It started as a a sort of a simple three-page bill and turned into a hundred-page bill by the time they were done with it. but one of the provisions would have uh, prohibited any sort of any jurisdictions from requiring the proof of receiving a COVID-19 vaccine in order to access things like transportation or public accommodations. That wouldn't necessarily target uh, private entities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they tried to make a point to get at that because there was some discussion of whether the way the amendment was worded, it could have uh, roped in places like I think one of the examples was hotels that receive tax credits mm-hmm. or the airline industry. They didn't they get federal aid. They did want to rope those in with this amendment, but they did want to say that like a city, county, uh, the state couldn't require any sort of a va- proof of vaccine to, to board public transit, for example. Um, and there's been no real talk of that in Missouri. You know, the governor has himself said that there wouldn't be any sort of statewide restrictions or requirements. But even he's open to the fact that, you know, private businesses do get to have a say over uh, their own premises. And so... That's that's where the vaccine passport stands in the Senate. That seems like that's kind of been struck as the compromise position, at least here in Missouri. And so is there appetite to pass this Senate version now in the House? I think if it was the bill that they attached it to has grown so much, it's going to inevitably go to a conference committee and they're going to have to work out differences. There's a lot of differences between a three page bill and a hundred page bill. Mm. Um, I think there's a good chance, given the fact that that has become such a, a just a topic of passion on the right these vaccine passports that the legislature is going to want to get something done. And this seems like the compromise position to allow for private companies and private entities to kind of make their own way, but to step in and prevent public uh, entities from mandatory, from these sort of passports. I think that's the compromise. I think that's what the legislature is going to be leaning towards. So I imagine we'll definitely get something done on that topic. Hmm. I understand also from the reporting on the Missouri Independent that in a letter to the governor um, earlier this week, nearly 80 lawmakers urged him to lift any remaining health restrictions uh, that are in place across the state. I assume this is looking at places like St. Louis City, St. Louis County that, that still have some restrictions on, on what private businesses even can do. I mean, it's it might just very well be, um, you know, in some states, there were statewide requirements, statewide mandates. Missouri had some in the early days of the pandemic. All of those have mostly been lifted. I can't think mm-hmm. of any restrictions that are still in place. There are still some regulations that have been waived. We're still under a state of emergency. But there's there wasn't ever a statewide mask mandate. It was all very much local control, kind of uh, some of the all of the, the restrictions were going to be put in place by folks on the ground. That was Governor Parson's entire MO during the pandemic. And so uh, this could be trying to prod him to to get some of those local governments to ease off of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, 
specific to Governor Parson, we were we sort of racked our brain trying to figure out what it was that they wanted to him to personally lift <laughs> because, you know, even last summer, most of those restrictions he put in place about social distancing or um, capacity limits, those were lifted um, long before you know, the, 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 we got into the fall and into the winter. So so the state of Missouri is open for business, even if some individual uh, municipalities and, and counties still have some rules in place. Do we know at this point, is the legislature planning to stop counties from continuing to have those kind of rules? There are, there's one, a couple of bills moving that pertain to local health orders. Some a little bit, go a little bit further than others. The one that got out of the Senate uh, and actually didn't get a ton of pushback would have required those health orders within, you know, if they wanted to extend them beyond 30 days, they needed to get the local governing body uh, a majority vote. So, you know, if it was implemented by the health director of St. Louis County, they'd have to go to the county council and Mm -hmm. actually have a vote in order to extend it beyond 30 days. You know, there were others that, you know, early on in the legislative session, there were bills that would have required you to come to the legislature or go to the state department of health. Um, There was a lot of pushback, even those who didn't like the orders, didn't like the idea of the state stepping completely in to these local matters and totally usurping local control. Hmm. And so it looked like the Senate kind of kind of coalesced around this position, this idea of they should at least at some point have to go to the local elected officials and get them to sign off. You know, it's still getting some pushback because in rural areas, the political pressure on some of these elected officials probably would have made it impossible to implement things like a mask mandate or social distancing requirements or capacity limits. Um, but that's, that's you know, a far cry. What, what's coming out of the Senate now is a far cry from where it started. And I think even Democrats who oppose it see it as, you know, the, the best of the worst case scenario for them if they were trying to stop this thing. Okay. So, Jason, one last thing we want to talk to you about today, and that was what Governor Parson had previously said was his big priority, COVID-19 liability. Um, I understand the Senate passed a sweeping bill, but it failed in the House. What happened there? Yeah, it came into a vote in the House Rules Committee, uh, which is sort of a like after it gets out of its normal committee, it goes to rules. It's supposed to kind of be a, a, a rubber stamp in a lot of ways. It got stuck there, though, because three Republicans joined with the Democrats to vote against it. And so there it lies. I think they're going to potentially take it back up again next week. But it seems as though the House is uh, staked out a much more pared down version of COVID liability, not as sweeping, uh, doesn't cover as much ground. You know, there was a lot of folks that had a lot of heartburn about the Senate's version of the bill and thought it was just basically cutting, giving a blank check to folks that would have put, uh, you know, customers or tenants in danger. This one, again, is a lot more pared down version. And uh, that's that's what the House seems to be focused on now. They've attached it to one of their own bills. They've got a Senate bill that, that's kind of moving through the process that they've they want to attach it to. Um, and so that's where the debate is moving. And it's also just a highlight of the House and the Senate. This time of year, it's pretty typical for them to not get along. And on these high-profile issues, uh, the tensions can run pretty high. So this pared-down version that appears to be what's going to move forward, in a nutshell, what would this say about who's who's not liable or who is? So this would say that like a, someone, a business owner, um, wouldn't be able to be exempt from criminal liability if, it, if there's an exposure to a contagious disease, unless they knowingly and pers- purposefully cause someone to be exposed to the disease. Hmm. And so it, it would have to be someone who was just like negligent and knowingly negligent. Um, whereas previous versions, they, they went a lot further. They seem to cover a lot more uh, industries, a lot more, um, a lot more 
you know, it set a very high standard for lawsuits that would allege any sort of medical malpractice or product liability. Mm. So it got into a lot more areas that the House really kind of fine-tuned it to, you know, trying to protect businesses that open up during the pandemic from any sort of uh, liability if someone, you know, was to catch COVID-19 and then claim that they caught it on the premises of like a restaurant. Okay. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to this one. There are so many things to keep an eye on right now. I know you guys are going to stay busy keeping that eye on it. So Jason Hancock, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Jason, again, is the editor-in-chief of the Missouri Independent. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.